a privilege to be back at uh, Charles Chapel. We enjoyed our evening uh, last evening. And thank you to the many folk here at the chapel I know who pray for uh, the work of the mission and uh, the church in Africa. Uh, people in Africa, when I come home, say, greet everyone in Britain for me. So I'm going to ask you, can I take your greetings to everyone in Africa uh, next time I'm there? But uh, on behalf of many African churches that we know and have partnership and fellowship with, receive their greetings and their thanks for standing with them in the great cause of the gospel. I want to get a, a very quick commercial out of the way downstairs in the lounge where I hope you'll all gravitate afterwards. There's a table, a couple of tables laden with literature down there uh, to do with our work in particular, but it gives you a wider perspective on what God is doing in the very exciting continent of Africa at the moment. Huge challenges, but enormous opportunities. My glamorous assistant is down there as well, and either of us would be more than delighted to have a chat with you and uh, give you helpful information. There's information about short-term mission opportunities, ways to get involved in prayer, particularly ways to get involved in, in the situation in Sudan at the moment through your giving. So please, uh, we'd love to see you down there after the service. We're going to hear God's word now, so turn with me, if you will, to what I'm sure are familiar verses, which at the end of Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, reading from verse 35 into the first verse of chapter 10. Just a few short verses, but uh, compelling and uh, vital verses for us to get our heads and minds around. Matthew chapter 9, reading from verse 35. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. He called his twelve disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. I want to invite you this morning as we study God's word to take an eye test. I want to share with you three words that come very clearly from these verses, each beginning with the letter I, that I think we need to evaluate our own lives and commitments and agendas by on this World Mission Sunday. As the son and the grandson of uh, Baptist missionaries who served in India for several decades between them, I guess it's hardly surprising that from my earliest days, one of the great heroes for me in the Christian faith, and particularly in the work of mission, has been William Carey, often called the, the, the father of the modern mission movement. I don't have, I have to tell you, too many early childhood memories. My wife continued tells me I must have had an appalling childhood and I've managed to blot most of it out. That's why I don't remember it. I think actually it was so good that I just hasn't uh, registered in my brain. But one of my early childhood memories is crossing the river from Calcutta where we lived in the last couple of years we were uh, in India and going to Serampore where Carey set up his base and his college after he left England and he was there for about 40, 45 years, never came home again did an astonishing work for the gospel in laying the foundations of the church in many ways on the continent of India. Carey described himself as a plodder. And yet in his lifetime he accomplished some amazing achievements, not least the translation of all or parts of the scriptures into numerous Indian languages. Now I often find myself going back to Carey's life and example. 
Not least because for me, he so clearly exemplifies and personifies the three truths that come before us from Matthew 9 this morning and that I want to share with you from these very familiar words. I'm almost apologetic, to be honest with you, bringing these particular verses to you this morning because they're probably among the most preached on on occasions like this when churches and others gather together to consider the yet unfinished task of mission. And part of me apologizes for turning our attention to them yet again. And yet part of me makes no apologies. Because the part of me that, that comes to this morning with such fresh conviction is because God has again brought these verses back to my own mind. And sometimes we can become, uh, try and be, become a bit clever and move away from the basic teachings of God's word. And it's often the very simple, in-your-face teachings of God's Word that we want to move away from because they're almost embarrassingly practical and challenging. And so I want us to look at these, these verses this morning under three headings, benchmarks against which we should evaluate our commitment to God's Word and to God's world. See, one of the dangers of an event like this, and I think World Mission Sunday in a church is one of the most dangerous weekends in church ever to come. But probably for a different reason than you're immediately thinking. I have to say, once or twice in my ministry, uh, in my present role, I've been called a very dangerous person at the end of a Sunday. And it's normally somebody who's come up to me after Sunday morning, and they're a little bit white around the gills, and they're shaking just a little bit, because they're beginning to think that God might be calling them to another part of the world. But I have found that is a very, very rare danger that people face. And I want to suggest to you this morning, in boldness, but also in love, that I think there's a far greater danger, and it's this. That for many of us, and I would dare to challenge many of you sitting here in church this morning, this is a very dangerous day, not because you're in danger of being called into service, but because you're in danger of being disobedient to what God is going to say to you. Now, I'm only saying that on the basis of past record and experience. The great danger for so many of us, not just on a mission Sunday, but on many Sundays in the year, is we sit and we hear God's Word, and it comes to us with a great clarity and relevance and appropriateness, and yet we switch off very quickly. I think with World Mission Sunday, it's perhaps even more dangerous, because we always know there's somebody in the church that we can pass the buck to. There's that little group in our churches that we call the missionary-minded. Not, it's not a very infectious disease, I've discovered. It doesn't spread very fast. But it's the sort of group in the church that we can always pass that responsibility on to. So when Mission Sunday comes up, we can just keep a low profile, keep our heads down, and it'll soon pass. Somebody else will pick it up and run with it. And it's an incredibly dangerous occasion to be in church when God's people are challenged about world mission because the challenge is not to the person sitting next to you. The challenge is not to the person sitting behind you. The challenge is to you from God's word. And if this morning you claim allegiance to God and to his word, then I pray that your ears and your hearts are open to whatever, whatever God may say to you this morning. No matter how radical it may come to you as, no matter how challenging, how life-altering, it's what God wants you to hear. And I want you to receive it as from God himself. And I want you to think, before we even get into the text this morning, this morning, I want you to think back in your life to the last occasion when you were at a missionary event. It may have been last night, it may have been a few weeks ago, it may have been months or years ago. The last time there was a specific focus on the challenge of world mission from God's word or from some other way. The last time you were presented with some statistics. 
The last time you were faced with some needs or some opportunities. It might have been a Sunday service. It might have been a CU meeting. It might have been a missions conference. And as I'm speaking to you, I want you to recall in your mind that event. I want you to recall what you heard. Bring back to your mind a face, a statistic, a need, a country, a situation that you are made aware of. And now I want to ask you in all honesty to answer this question. What is different about you now than before you were at that event? What difference did it make to your prayer life? What difference did it make to your spending? What difference has it made in your career thinking? What difference has it made in the allocation of your time? And I suspect that for so many of us, and I'd be almost as bold to say for most of us, the honest answer is, not a bit. We've gone on with our lives as if we'd never been to that meeting. We've acquired more information, we've ticked a few more boxes, we've increased in our head knowledge of what the world is about, but it actually hasn't, in any shape or form, made us different people. And that's the great danger. That's the great danger of events like this when we focus on mission. Even at times our heartstrings have been tugged. And yet the actual impact on our lives has been minimal, if not negligible. And my prayer as we come to this special Sunday in the life of this church here, and it's my prayer for myself as much as for you, is that God may make a difference in our lives, so that we will make a difference in the world in which we live. Here are the three things I believe we need to do and evaluate our lives by from these verses. Here's the eye test I want us all to take this morning. I want to ask you this morning, first of all, are you informed? Secondly, are you impacted? And thirdly, are you involved? First of all, are you informed about what God is doing in the world? Look at what we're told in Matthew 9 and verse 36. When Jesus saw the crowds... He had compassion on them. It was when Jesus looked at the people in front of him. It was when Jesus looked on the crowds that he ministered to. Go back a couple of chapters in Matthew's Gospel and you'll find a whole series of little cameo pictures of Jesus interacting with people in different situations of need. Physical illness, demon possession, blindness, death, all sorts of things. And Jesus saw the crowds. He looked at the people that he came in front of. He looked at the people he interacted with. But the word in the original here is one of several words Scripture uses to speak of seeing. And this one is the word oao, which links the thought with the sight. It links the seeing with perception and understanding. It's not just the physical act of seeing with your eyes, but it's taking in what you're seeing, it's reflecting what you're seeing, it's interpreting what you're seeing. And Jesus didn't just see the crowds, he saw with insight, he saw with perception, he saw with thought. William Carey was a cobbler. He mended and made shoes. He was a schoolmaster. He was a preacher in the villages in Northamptonshire. Preaching was his first love. Indeed, he used to say that he mended shoes to pay his expenses to be a preacher. And he was a great, he had a great curious mind. He lived in the days of Captain Cook and the great explorations of the world and the companies like the, the East India Company. And he had a, a, an insatiable appetite to find out what these guys were doing on their travels with all the limited technology and communication they had in those days. 
And he used to gather all the information he could as he followed these travels. And using scraps of leather from his cobbler's workshop, he constructed a map of the world as he knew it on the wall of his day. And every bit of information he got from a newspaper or a book or a bit of news he heard, he plotted the facts and the figures on this leather map on his wall. He looked at the world. He saw the world. And you know, my friends, your generation, my generation, this generation, has the least excuse of any generation that has ever lived. For not being informed about what is going on in the world today and what God is doing in the world today. We have unprecedented access to information from almost every corner of the globe, even as it is happening. We don't hear it a month later. We watch it with our eyes. And yet here's the, here's the indictment of this generation. This generation, it seems to me, knows less and cares less. For what God is doing in the world today than the generations from which my parents and my grandparents came. With the far fewer opportunities they had to know what was going on beyond the shores in which they lived. And my friends, I want to encourage you this morning to keep your eyes open on the world in which you live. To develop a voracious appetite for world news and events. And to look at it all and see it as Jesus did with insight, with perception and with thought. Isn't that what events like this is about? Isn't that why churches like Charlotte Chapel organize mission events? So that not only can they focus specifically on those many, many passages of Scripture that bring the challenge before us, but they can open up new windows for us, broaden our horizons, increase our awareness of what's going on in the world, and yet we can be there and we can see it and yet not see it. We can see it superficially, we can see it statistically, we can see it geographically, and yet not really see what we're seeing. We can hear and yet not hear. Already this weekend, many of you have been made aware of situations in different parts of Africa, for example. But how much have we really seen? How much have we seen with perception and with insight and with thought? We need to look at the world in which we live in different ways. We need to look at the people among whom we live and work day to day in different ways than we're used to doing. We need to look physically, but we also need to look spiritually. To see the world as Jesus saw it through Jesus' eyes. With discernment, with thought, with understanding. Remember that great story of Jesus and his encounter with the woman of Samaria in John 4. He sees the crowds of Samaritans coming down from the villages after the woman has gone back, so excited. Come and see a man who's told me everything I ever did. And so this bunch of Samaritan people, probably dressed in their, their long white jellabiers, they walk down the road towards Jesus. But Jesus doesn't just see a bunch of folk walking down the road. He sees a potential spiritual harvest. Look, he says, the fields are already white unto harvest. He saw them. But he saw beyond the physical, he saw the spiritual, he saw with perception, with understanding. My friends, that's how we need to look at the world. That's how we need to read our newspapers. That's how we need to watch the television news. That's how we need to listen to it on the radio or however else we get the news. And continually ask ourselves, what's the human dimension and what's the spiritual dimension that's going on here? So before we do anything else this morning, before you leave this place, I would ask you to ask God, in the quietness of your heart, to give you new eyes 
You will never engage with the world. You will never respond to the world in its spiritual needs until, first of all, you see the crowds as Jesus sees them. We need new eyes. So, my first question, the, the first eye that we need to evaluate our lives by is, are we informed? The second one is this, and it follows on from the first, and it's a necessary follow-on. It's this, are we impacted? And here, I believe, is where the test begins to come in. Here is how we can evaluate whether we've been seeing the world through God's eyes or not. And the test is this, what impact does what we've seen have on us? Carey's biographer recalls how the children that Carey taught in his little Northamptonshire classroom would sometimes see a very strange sight. They'd often look and they'd see their teacher, William Carey, move to tears of compassion and pity as he pointed to some statistic or part of his handmade leather map and as he looked at it, he'd cry out, and they're all pagans. Carey accumulated all this information. He plotted it statistically. But it wasn't just cold, hard facts to carry. When he looked at it, when he thought about it, it moved into tears. Because then, as now, he looked around the world and he saw vast areas where all these people, all these nations, all these languages were completely in darkness as far as the gospel was concerned. You see, his soul was so spiritually nourished and made sensitive, so the careful accumulation of facts and figures as he saw the world became a great burden to him that frequently, regularly, moved him to tears. Look again at the example of Jesus, verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. He didn't just see them, his seeing impacted him. The word translated compassion here is a very strong word. It's not just the sort of word we would use perhaps in English language today where you, you sit down and have a cup of tea with somebody and try and cheer them up. It's far more than just sympathy or tenderness. It's a deep, gut-wrenching pain. It's like a knife being stuck into your stomach and turned several times. It breaks your heart. It leaves you deeply and profoundly moved. And when Jesus saw the crowds, for reasons which we'll see in a moment, every fiber of his being was involved in the response. It's the very same word, for instance, that Luke uses to describe Jesus' reaction when he comes across the funeral procession of the widow of Nain. And in an instant, Jesus summed up the situation. He saw this woman who was now completely destitute and alone and hopeless in the world because her, her only son was dead. And as the Son of God, never mind as a compassionate human being, his heart broke at the sight. He had compassion on her. And so strong was the emotion aroused in the heart of the Savior, that it always, when we read of it in Scripture, always prompted him into action. He never saw and had compassion and did nothing. The proof of his seeing aright was that it tugged at his heartstrings, it broke his heart, and always, always, always led to action. But notice something else that Matthew tells about Jesus here in Matthew 9. What was it about these people that impacted him quite so deeply? After all, he's quite used to seeing the lame. He's quite used to seeing the blind. He's quite used to engaging with the, the demon-possessed. He's been to many funerals. He's seen many dead people. But this is a, the first time we read of it quite with this strength in this particular situation. 
Notice what we're told. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, not because they were lame or blind or demon-possessed, but because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. If you have the authorized translation, it's not terribly helpful, at least in our modern understanding of words here. The picture is a very graphic one of hordes of people, not physically scattered, as the AV reading would suggest, from one another, but scattered within, torn, lost, vulnerable, hopeless. One commentator explains the phrase like this. He says, the crowds are like sheep worried by dogs and left lying on the ground, unable to exert themselves. I wonder if you've sometimes seen those graphic, mind-boggling pictures on television of some great... They often use the phrase sort of biblical proportion famine or some human catastrophe. And as far as the eye can see, all you can see are people in appalling need. The nearest I've come to that is in Sudan where I've been on several occasions. And I remember uh, last year on my, last, on my visit in 2005, driving to one of the great uh, settlements of uh, displaced people around the edge of Khartoum, where literally millions of, mainly southerners, have been displaced, living in the most appalling human conditions you can possibly imagine. And you drive for about 20, 25 miles, and you still don't get to the end of this place. And all you see are people living in desert, in mud houses, in uh, wigwams that are made of bits of cloth and material and plastic stuck together to make it it's some sort of habit habitable. No electricity, no water, no infrastructure of any sort. The government had literally taken them out there and dumped them in the hope they'll die. And it's, it's more than the human mind can get round. And Jesus sees crowds like this. But his main concern for them is not that they're living in poor conditions. His main concern for them is not that they've not got medicine to put in their bodies. His main concern for them is not that they're educated or all those things concern them. His main concern is they're spiritually lost. They're harassed and helpless with nobody to lead them, nobody to guide them, nobody to give them eternal life. And the tense of the verb that Matthew uses here, this harassed and helpless, is that this is their habitual condition, this is their normal situation, and they've been like this for years and years and years. This is everyday life. Now, ICANN and missionaries frequently do show you graphic images of the physical suffering and the plight of men and women and children in the world in which we live today. Sometimes in vast innumerable throngs and you would be less than human if you weren't affected and moved by them. But what no video, no photograph can show you is the deep emptiness, futility, hopelessness of human beings separated from Christ by their sin and pray to all the evil wiles of Satan and his hosts. Like those sheep worried by dogs, left lying on the ground, unable to exert themselves, at the mercy of the powers of darkness. And it's only through the eyes of Jesus that you can see such things. And it's only by the Spirit of Jesus that you can feel the pain in the, your heart as Jesus did. My friends, this is where I have been personally so challenged in recent days. I've come back to these verses, which I know so well and have spoken on several occasions. It's in spite of all the missionary presentations we have seen, despite all the facts and the figures at our fingertips, despite all the knowledge and awareness we have of the world around us, there is so little desire on the part of the vast majority of God's people to do anything about it. 
They speak in the secular world, don't they, of compassion, fatigue, when we've seen so many appeals and so many needs that we switch off, we get on with our dinner, we don't give any more. My friends, there's a far greater danger out there in the church of Jesus Christ. It's spiritual compassion fatigue. Every day you and I rub shoulders with, interact with hundreds if not thousands of men and women and young people. Statistically likely, the vast majority of them are on their way to a lost eternity. No hope, no thought of God in this world or in the next. And it doesn't affect us one little bit. We can come to missionary events, we can hear the figures, we can see the pictures, we can watch the videos. And within five minutes, we've lost the impact. Within five minutes, we're getting on with our everyday lives. Within five minutes, we're back again increasing our own material convenience or security. Have we not become weary and immune to the physical suffering of men and women, not to mention almost impervious to the spiritual plight of vast tracts of humanity? Now I know that we mustn't try to emotionally coerce men and women into acts of kindness, never mind into active missionary service. But isn't it a sad indictment of my cold heart and yours that we can remain so largely unmoved and unaffected? Do you think that Jesus could easily sit and watch the television screens today? Do you think that Jesus could easily sit and listen to some of the statistics and presentations that you and I encounter on a regular basis? And though he already knows it all, of course, do you think he could remain unmoved, unemotional, unaffected? Listen to Moses, praying for his fellow Israelites who have sinned abominably round the golden calf at the foot of Mount Sinai. In imminent danger of God's monumental judgment, listen to Moses crying to God, God, please forgive their sin, but if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. In other words, if my being lost for all eternity will save them, so be it. Listen to Paul, also praying for his unconverted fellow Jews. I speak the truth in love, he says. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. My friends, let me ask you a searching question. When did you last? When did you ever feel like that? When did you last pray like that for a non-Christian you know? Never mind for the faceless millions you'll never meet. When did your last thinking and awareness of people in their spiritual lostness, bound for a Christless, awful eternity, when did it last move you even to tears? When did you last pray to God with tears in your eyes? Oh God, save that man, save that woman, save that young person. Oh God, bring help to them. My friends, how much we need God's Spirit to come and soften our hearts. Even when we see how little impact it has on us. And if you think I'm overstating it, and even not being accurate, I have to tell you the evidence is all there. The numbers of people involved in our local churches, in local evangelism, in our own countries, is declining on a steadily basis. The number of people volunteering to go overseas in active missionary service is declining on a steady basis from this part of the world. 
We see, we, have, we see more than any generation in the past has seen. But it's not affecting us. It's not moving us to do anything about it. And all we need to cry to God, that as we sit under His Word, as we look at His world, our emotions might be touched. Our compassion might be stirred. Are you informed? And if you're informed, are you impacted? And thirdly, are you involved? See, when Jesus saw, he had compassion. And his compassion was a practical compassion. His compassion always resulted in action. The interesting thing to note about Jesus' response to the situation is it was never purely on the emotional level. Here's the safeguard. I don't want emotionalism. God forbid. But I want some more emotion. I want an emotion that results in action. I want people, I want myself to feel a softness, a sensitivity in my spirit that prompts me to do something, that leaves me without sleep if need be, until I've done something. Jesus had compassion on people, and the evidence they had compassion was that he did something about it. And here in Matthew 9, he shares that concern quite literally with his disciples by getting them involved in the response. Get involved, he says, pray for more workers, verse 37. Having seen the sheep, Harassed and helpless, he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask, pray, cry to the Lord of the harvest to thrust out, that's the strength of the word, send out workers into his harvest field. Jesus says there's a massive need out there. Do something about it. William Carey saw William Carey was impacted, frequently moved to tears, but Carey did something about it. He took all this information that he carefully collated. It moved his own heart, and then he said, I've got to get others involved here. So he stirred people up. He wrote a long book. You can still read it today with all those facts and figures in there, but also a great, powerful explanation years ahead of his time as to how the church could engage with his great missionary task. He had this book printed. He harangued his fellow missionaries. He became a pain in the neck. Every time he went to pastors fraternal, they always knew what was on the agenda as far as Kerry was concerned. What about the lost? What about the lost? And every time they told him to sit down and shut up, and the next time he said, what about the lost? And when they wouldn't go, he said, okay, I'll go myself. And he went. So I began this morning by asking you, to think back to a missionary event in a recent or distant past and ask yourself what actual difference it's made on your life. And I feel that for most of us, the embarrassing answer is none. And you see, one of the dangers of missionary events is that we sit there, and many, if not most of us, sit there and say, well, this isn't for me, it doesn't include me, because God hasn't called me to be a missionary, He hasn't called me to be involved in mission work. And I want to ask, say to you this morning, if you're a Christian, then you couldn't be more wrong. You couldn't be more wrong. Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, said this, every Christian, every Christian, is either a missionary or a hypocrite. Every Christian is either a missionary or a hypocrite. Now, he didn't mean by that that every Christian should be on a foreign mission field, to use that sort of language, but he meant that every Christian has no alternative, no option, but to be practically, personally involved in the work of world mission. Otherwise, they're a hypocrite. So, I want to call on you today to ask God to give you the resolve that you will not make the same mistake this weekend or today that so many of us have made in the past. That this day, this weekend, will result in action. 
We've unprecedented resources. We again of all generations in the history of the world have least excuse to do nothing. Let me suggest some of the practical ways that you can get involved. The first of course, and the one mentioned here, is through prayer itself. Specifically in this context for more workers. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest field. Let me ask you a very straightforward question. When did you last obey that command? Do you regularly obey that command? It's a command of the Lord Jesus, given to his disciples, those who acknowledge his leadership. How often do you pray for more workers? Why is it that every missionary society that I know could use far more workers than we have available? I think one of the answers lies in the book of James, which I gather you're studying on Sunday night as well as we are back in our church. It's this, you have not because you ask not. When we've got a financial shortfall, we're pretty quick to get to our knees and ask God for help. When we need guidance or direction or wisdom, we get on our knees and ask God for help. But here is the great need of the church today, worldwide. It's the mobilization of God's people down the street, across the world. But we don't care about it, so we don't ask God about it. We need to pray for more workers. I believe the prayer is widened that it's for the advance of the gospel and God's blessing on all his workers. Are you involved in the prayer life of the work of mission? The, probably the worst attended meeting in any church in the UK today is the missionary prayer meeting. Indeed, if you want to guarantee low attendance at anything, just put the word missionary in front of it. But we don't pray for mission. We don't pray for missionaries. We don't pray for the churches to which they're going to. We don't pray for the unreached. We don't pray for world mission, generally speaking. My friends, we're never going to get involved if we don't begin by praying. Are you involved in praying? Are you praying specifically, intelligently, personally, persistently? But there's more you can do. Getting involved begins begins with getting informed. Take a missions magazine. Perhaps I'm sitting here this morning and as I speak to you and bring God's word to you, you say, yeah, I want to do something. I want to find out what's going on. I want to be obedient to the word of God. Well, here's where you start. Find out what's going on. Go and pick up a missionary magazine. Attend a missionary conference. Talk to a missionary who's visiting or a missions worker. Read a book like Operation World, which should be on the the bookshelf of every single living Christian and well read. Read a missionary biography. Read a missionary prayer letter. Watch a missionary DVD or video. Get in touch with a worker overseas. Find out what life is really like. The possibilities are literally endless today. Get involved. Find out what's going on. Get involved financially. Are you giving to the work of God's work? Not just here at home, crucial and vital as that is, but are we giving to the wider work of God's world? You know, our generation has the highest levels of income of any generation of Christians in the West. And yet our giving to the Lord's work, both at home and overseas, to use those old distinctions, but especially to the strategic work of the unreached and pioneer church work, is far lower today, proportionally, than it was in my grandparents' day. We give proportionately less of our income today than we did 80 years ago. Because we care less for those who are still outside the cause of the gospel. Will you resolve, as a result of this weekend, to revisit your budget and your spending activities. Resolve to do without something that you could quite usefully use and enjoy. But do without it so the work of the gospel might be advanced. 
Revisit your present level of mission giving and increase it to a level where it actually costs you something. Where it actually hurts to make a blessing and a difference to somebody else. Get get involved through prayer. Get involved through information. Get involved through finance. But my friend, there's no substitute for actually going. There's no substitute for actually taking part in some mission activity. And again today, we have unprecedented, undreamed of possibilities to do just that. Instead of taking a holiday somewhere, lying on a beach, spend that same amount of money and visit a missionary work. Visit a missionary that you know of and find out what's going on and bless them just by your presence. One of the greatest encouragements I've had this year was back in about May when we got a phone call from friends of ours who normally go off on a nice holiday somewhere in different parts of the world every year. And they said, we don't want to spend the money doing that this year. How can we go and bless a missionary somewhere? So this couple who are financially secure, normally enjoy their holidays, they went off to our South African office in Cape Town, and they spent two or three weeks there. Yeah, they had a bit of a holiday, but they spent most of their time teaching in a local school. Uh, Drew helped in the local office. He helped with some computer problems. He was just an extra pair of hands around the place. My friends, they're still talking about their, their, their visit in the office down there. The local school down there is still thrilled with what Lillian did in the school. Lillian said it's the only time she ever came away on holiday and cried when she got on the plane to come home. Do something useful. The opportunities today are unprecedented. We often talk about young folk going and doing short-term mission trips. Wonderful. Let's get on with them. But my friends, just because you're over 40 doesn't rule you out. Just because you're over 60 doesn't rule you out. We have 70-year-olds on the mission field. Some of them started in their late 60s. There's no substitute for going and getting your hands dirty and seeing what's going on. The question is, have you got the guts to do it? Because you don't know what impact it might make on your life. Here's my summing up for you this morning. It's this. As we talk about getting involved. Assume God wants you to be somewhere else than you are at the moment. Until you're absolutely positive he wants you to be where you are. That's the challenge, isn't it? Let me say it again. Assume that God wants you to be somewhere else serving him. Until you can prove that he wants you here. See, most of us just assume he wants us to stay in our home situation, stay in the church we were brought up in, stay in our own local neighborhood, stay within our own culture. That's an assumption. It needs to be tested. It needs to be challenged. I need to do it regularly as I go and challenge others and preach on mission. I need to ask myself again and again and again, am I today where God wants me to be? And I can say with all honesty before you, I believe I am. Can you say that? Assume God wants you to be somewhere else until you've proven before him that he wants you where you are. I may have used this illustration here before you, but I find it such a powerful example. One of our missionaries is involved in mission service because her pastor in church a number of years ago said this, give God the chance to turn you down. And I want to challenge you this morning to have the courage, to have the guts, To go to God and give him the chance to say, no, I don't want you overseas. I don't want you in some different mission situation. I don't want you in an unreached pioneer situation. I want you here in Charlotte Chapel or wherever your home church is. If that's where God wants you, that's the very best for you. But are you sure? Are you sure? Give God the chance to turn you down. My friends, there's a very powerful verse in the book of James. It says this, 
the person who knows what they should do, but don't do it, sins. And most of us would have to put our hands up before God and say after countless mission events and biblical challenges and videos and statistics and heart-wrenching scenes, we have sinned greatly because we've done nothing. We've not even prayed. We've not even given. We've not even thought about going and doing something. And every one of us is a Christian this morning. We have two choices to make. We either go ourselves or we send somebody else in our name. There isn't a third option that will stand up before God this morning. Go or send somebody in your name. Are you informed? Are you impacted? Are you involved? And if at this moment in time the honest answer is no, well, now's the great time to start. The longest journey, says the old proverb, starts with a short step. Take the short step today, even before you leave this building, and resolve before God that you will no longer be disobedient to his word. Let's pray.